0: Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals Podcast. Kyle McLaughlin and the Mongol Bride by Ian Gordon Foreword I'm not normally the sort to share the experiences of others, but I suppose my happening upon the journal of Trevor S., in a Kathmandu hotel room, owing to the substandard practices of its staff, is fortunate, for how else would such an incredible story have been told? There it was, bejeweled with colourful scribbles and wacky adornments, its magnolia pages telling a tale both fascinating and absurd. The ramblings of a madman? I don't know. I suspect not. But I'll let you be the judge. Seymour Yates British tourist of no repute. This is the journal of Trevor S. Entry 1, 8th of March, 1998, Krakow. New day, new city, new book. This old thing is an absolute delight. Found it in an old scalp in the Jewish quarter. Negotiated with a shopkeeper in broken Polish. Cost me two zloty, an absolute bargain. Leather-bound, reeks of the past, reminds me of my grandmother. Arrived in Krakow this morning at ten-thirty. Followed a couple of locals to Cloth Hall, and basked in its grandeur. What a place! Bold but restrained. Untouched by the Second World War. Magnificent architecture. Vavil, tomorrow, the mighty castle on the hill. Smock's cave, too. Or, as he's otherwise known, the Dragon of Vavil Hill— This place is magic and mystery incarnate. Saving my words for now. Too much to see. Too much to do. Trev Entry 2 11th of March, 1998 Krakow I caught a whiff of something unusual today. There's a road, they say. Some call it the path, or Murphy's method. In Krakow, they call it Arter's Road. It's a journey, according to the locals here in Kajimers, a way in which to leave yourself behind, to step into new shoes. It's all whispers and clandestine gibberish, but I have to admit it has me intrigued. The Austrian barman down at Harris Jazz Bar, Hans, or Hansong, as I've taken to calling him, relayed the whole thing in verse, and in broken English. I jotted it down on the back of a beer mat. It went something like this— It's a dusty old thing, that memory, Littered with weeds unseen, Over the hills, under the trees, There on the edge of a dream. Stray too far, and you'll miss it, The thought it won't ever occur, To stray into wilds without reason, Magnificent the end of despair. Beyond the bridges of slumber, No couth and her barnacled throne, Fade into blackness, and stroll by the light, Close to the end of the line. And when awake once again by the starlight, Look to the eye of the storm, but beware the path less travelled, for you might just forget who you are. They say it's a kind of meditation, something inherently Eastern, in its philosophy. I reckon I'll give it a shot. Can't be any worse than ayahuasca, can it? Man, I can still taste that shit. Hansong says I'll take to it like a duck to water. Well, we'll see, won't we? Trev Note from here on in, the journal entries give way to a narrative style that reads as fiction. i refrain from punctuating the rest with observations. I just wanted to highlight what appears to be a clear transformation in character. If the handwriting wasn't exactly the same, I'd have assumed the journal had been continued by someone else. Yates The Bus Stop I cross the line— but it took a moment or two for me to realise it. I had the vaguest memory of gazing upon a cityscape full of domed towers and sharp spires, but it quickly faded. From some lofty vantage point, I'm certain I saw a giant airship floating above a huge subterranean lake. But again, the vision was fleeting. Then blackness for several seconds. I wandered into a forest— and the name hands hovered like vapour above me. I remember a bridge, and a curious canopy aglow with twilight haze. This scene persisted for several minutes, becoming increasingly unfamiliar—until, once again, darkness, for the longest time. I want to relate the experience to that of the dream state, but my presence of mind throughout the various stages of the journey suggested consciousness and a keen sense of purpose. But to what end, I cannot be certain. Eventually emerging from that unfathomable darkness, I could hear the beginnings of a storm somewhere above me, but I was sheltered from it in a featureless space. Like a baby, I listened, fascinated, terrified. Like the portamento wail of a synthesizer, the pitch of the wind descended, as the tempest drifted away. Quite abruptly— All fell silent. Climbing to my feet, I stretched my stiff limbs and brushed the sand from my beard. As my eyes adjusted to my new surroundings, I saw a shaft of light penetrating the gloom. I walked towards it. Stepping outside, the star above shone as I assumed it always had, illuminating a vast desert. The hardpan was endless in every direction, entirely featureless other than a curious series of concentric circles carved by the passing storm. The circles bordered the shelter, which I now saw was an old bus stop, serving as the merest suggestion of the presence of intelligent life in the vicinity. In the life I lived, prior to this one, I'm sure I once observed a series of photographs on the walls of an unnamed gallery. Soviet bus stops, I believe, was the subject of the exhibition— The old shelter before me resembled one of those bus stops—sapphire blue, with five enormous seashell-shaped bowls converging to form an arch. Quite marvellous it was. I gazed out across the desert. Contemplating the dusty circles out there on the plains, I recalled the principles of uncertainty and probability. And it was then that I realised I'd made it. I'd successfully walked the path— or at least that's what I think they'd called it in the previous life. The bus stop in the bleakness of the desert was my personal station, a gateway capable of taking me wherever I wanted to go—wherever I dared to go, at least. Hastily, I returned to the confines of the seashell shelter, eager to move on. Where would I go next? McLaughlin's Doppelganger A damn fine cup of coffee, howled the man wearing the face of Kyle MacLachlan. To be fair, the coffee on the bus was indeed wonderful, though my preoccupation with my new friend's uncanny resemblance to the actor who once portrayed Agent Dale Cooper was persistent. He gulped zealously, his face warped by a grin that carved a bow from ear to ear. I'd met MacLachlan's doppelganger on a mountain pass in Nepal, overlooking Tolicho Lake, my Sherpa friend, Ben, had noticed a head of black hair down by the water, and had ushered us in its direction. The man sat alone, contemplating the stillness of the place. He turned as we approached, and I caught a glimpse of Geoffrey Beaumont, that awkward, lanky character with a penchant for stealing glances at Dorothy Valens. I ambled over, coughed up some nonsense about being a fan, and congratulated the man and his achievements. The blank expression he offered in return implied that the stranger on the mountain wasn't who he appeared to be. He took it in good humour, though, standing, and extending a pale hand. I shook the appendage, and proffered Bill. As we talked, I couldn't help but notice the way his eyes were continually drawn to the water. Quite out of nowhere, McLaughlin's doppelganger asked if I'd care for some company, as I made my way back to Kathmandu. I said it would be a pleasure, and as a result, I bade farewell to Big Ben. His services were no longer required. Over the course of two weeks, we journeyed to Kathmandu. And when we arrived, I assumed we would part ways, as, bizarrely, we hadn't really got to know each other very well. Yes, we'd talked about a variety of things over the weeks, from the origin of man to the nature of intelligence. But the details of our personal lives had remained under lock and key. I hadn't even learned the man's name—I'd persisted in calling him Kyle the whole time. But as fate would have it, he proposed further travels. He spoke of a region beyond the Himalayas and the Tibetan plateau. "'Bill, I want to tell you about the Altai Mountains. The range borders four countries—China, Mongolia, Russia, and Kazakhstan. The mountains are home to a very special body of water. I saw it in a vision. "'Yeah?' I said. "'Yes, and I must go there. She's waiting for me.' "'Who?' I asked. "'My love,' he replied. "'Did you see her in your vision, too?' "'Yes, sir. That's good enough for me, Kyle.' His vagueness baffled me, but his eyes seemed to plead some unearthly passion. I urged him to continue. "'We have to find that lake,' he said though it isn't on any map. I reckon it is, but it's in your head. Kyle nodded. I recalled the bus stop, and what I'd had to do to find it, or at least, what I thought I'd done. That former life of mine was hazy, the path between it and the present life even foggier. But somehow, I sensed Kyle knew something about it, and that our meeting on that mountain pass hadn't been pure coincidence. Borders scar identities he continued. Invisible barriers instil fear and uncertainty. The land in which the lake lies is beyond the reach of the Chinese, the Mongols, the Russians, and the Kazakhs. Yet the occupants of the land claim to descend from all four. But my love, my only love, is a woman of pure Mongol descent." The man with the face of Agent Dale Cooper was wise—wise beyond his years. He spoke a rare kind of poetry and to his words, I was hooked. I asked again, Who is she? But he ignored the question, and continued, The nomads venture there from time to time. But it's at a phase with the rest of the world, and so only a very select few are even aware of it. And you're among that select few? We are among that select few, he said, smiling broadly. Feels good, doesn't it? I agreed, if only to satiate my new friend. Which brings me back to the bus journey, and that wonderful coffee. Kyle was still grinning, his face awash with a thousand conflicting emotions. I wondered if he truly believed what he told me about that mysterious lake in the Altai Mountains. But considering the things that had happened to me over the preceding hours, days, or weeks, I was open to McLaughlin's vision quest, however absurd it might have sounded to the layman. The bus would take us as far as Lhasa. From there, we would continue some two thousand miles by any available means. Bus, camel, barefoot—who knew? Perhaps we could take Arter's Road. Where had I heard that before? I must remember to revisit the journal's earlier entries, at some stage. But then, something else occurred to me—something I heard repeated over and over again, in a German accent— but beware the path less travelled, for you might just forget who you are. Glass Ampersands The route was grand. The mountainous terrain gave way to sweeping ravines, pointing arrow-like in the direction of our destination. The place we sought was practically invisible, lying somewhere beyond the vast Taklamakan desert. A girl, barely nineteen, awaited Kyle, with whom he claimed to have communicated following the consumption of a certain controversial South American brew. We're to marry, he continued. On the banks of the lake, she and I will cast aside our humanity, and merge in the water. Hermaphroditus we are. My reply, in a tongue not quite my own, was, That shit, too fucking far, man— The heat of the day was punishing, but Kyle and I somehow managed to keep moving forward. At times, it was as though we merely hovered above the ground, hurtling along at speeds hitherto unknown to man. And we covered extraordinary distances in this manner, drawn to our destination by the will of something beyond our comprehension. I had no doubt whatsoever that we would reach Kyle's mysterious lake, for I found refuge— and reassurance in nature's symmetry. When we rested, the horizon whispered to me, though it spoke in a language I didn't understand. And it was the flattest of horizons, clearly defined by the star setting in the west. And, on one occasion, I watched, as above that horizontal line floated a strange spectacle, an ampersand some fifty feet in diameter. As I stared, transfixed, the giant, semi-transparent figure gave birth to smaller figures. The weird characters danced like frolicking locusts, before falling to the ground like snowflakes, dusting the hardpan. If we are, as many have said, inclined to recognize symmetry in nature, then those translucent ampersands were willing me to recognize asymmetry—the reckless disorder of it all. The vision That hovering typeface, the result of eccentric company and, quite possibly dehydration, was a terrible omen, and a dark foreboding washed over me, as we moved in the direction of Kyle's Lake. I shuddered at the implications. Just who was this man, really, and what had become of me? Would I ever know normalcy again? The driest of all spirits— "'McLaughlin's Lake—it moved me.' Kyle wept. The vista was grand in the extreme—the land in which nature was impeccably preserved, entirely untouched by destructive hands. Trees of old growth towered alongside pinnacles of ancient stone, sheltering the lake from the eyes of the unworthy. The scene was utterly still, the water reflecting the surrounding scenery flawlessly— To gaze into that oceanic pool, was to observe the submerged pebbles and bedrock under a lens of pure glass. I was afraid to disturb it. But it was Kyle who cast the first stone, and the resulting ripples sent out a call to his unseen siren. At first, we saw nothing but ripples, as the undulations playfully disrupted the reflections of the trees and the mountains. But then, A minute or two later, a single opposing ripple neutralized Kyle's, and the lake fell still once again. Out there in the water, some fifty feet or so, a figure slowly emerged. A shape, of distinctly feminine outline, strolled towards us, the water completely indifferent to her strides. "'There she is,' Kyle announced, and yet again a broad, tearful smile filled his face— But out of the corner of my eye, he flickered, like a television losing its signal. I turned to meet his gaze, but, instead of those deep, dark eyes, I met the form of a small, hovering ampersand, almost entirely translucent. I shook my head. The ampersand disappeared, and in its place, I saw a grinning stranger—a woman, an ancient, haggard lady with rubbery wrinkled skin, bulging eyes and dimpled cheeks, a bulbous nose, and rotten teeth. The thing that had lain submerged for generations laughed at me, its saturated vocal folds resulting in a terrible, gurgling cackle, those swollen eyes oozing dark water and pus. And I could smell that foul creature—the scent of death and putrefaction, the essence of evil and corruption. It was utterly nauseating, and damnably horrifying. The Mongol bride had arisen, and she had taken possession of my friend. I turned, and fled. Entry 7 I was dreaming, out on the plains of some distant desert. I was running, running as fast as my tired legs could carry me. My feet were blistered and raw, but I couldn't stop. Something was after me. Something that had betrayed my friend. This abhorrent, ancient thing was older than the pyramids, older than humanity. And as it gained on me, it extended a bony, waterlogged limb and succeeded in touching me. I shrieked as it conveyed a simple instruction before vanishing into thin air. Worship at my barnacled throne. I awoke in a dilapidated bathroom broken tiles pressed into my back, and I could smell the faintest hint of seaweed—could taste salt water on my lips. I staggered to my feet, approached the sink, and gazed into the remaining shards of the mirror above it. "'How's Kyle?' I asked. CONCLUSION Yates here. Reads like a riddle, doesn't it? but I can't help but think there's some truth to this path and or Arter's Road business. And considering Trevor S. explicitly referenced Murphy's method in his journal, I'm utterly convinced. You see, I once investigated the disappearance of a man by the name of Murphy, Jason Murphy, of West Broughton, England. This fellow wandered out into the wilderness in the middle of the night, never to be seen again— Handwritten notes were found at his home, none of which explained his disappearance, but many of which contained phrases and ideas eerily similar to those recorded by Trevor S. Two examples spring to mind. Firstly, there's talk of No upon her barnacled throne. Murphy wrote, In the warmth of the deep forest, where the sunnet rarely shines, sits the barnacled throne of Nokuth on the Stygian river line. The word no couth yields nothing, if you're to search for it in encyclopedias, dictionaries, etc. But it's clear to me that the name belongs to something of great significance—a deity of some sort. And the second example that both Trevor S. and Murphy wrote, almost word for word, but beware the path less travelled, for you might just forget who you are. It is my belief that Trevor S., intrigued by the idea of Murphy's method, Unwittingly became a lone wanderer, and in an altered state, filled the boots of both Bill and Cal McLaughlin's doppelganger before finally succumbing to something ancient and beyond his reckoning. No Kuth, aka the Mongol Bride. I hear you asking, what does it all mean? Well, this journal came to me for a reason, and I strongly believe that the key to this whole thing lies with understanding what happened to the elusive Jason Murphy. But that's another story. Seymour Yates, British tourist of no repute.